Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. So on one of our episodes last week, we started a series on the heroes and villains of philosophy. And we were lucky enough or fortunate enough to have with us Professor Andrew Bernstein, who's an expert on the subject, and he's back with us today to continue talking about it. He received his PhD from the Graduate School of the City University of New York, and he has taught and lectured at too many colleges for me to name. He's an advocate of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Dr. Bernstein, welcome back to the show. Oh, Michael, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so last time you were here, we ended with Aristotle, and we decided that Plato was a villain of philosophy and Aristotle was definitely a hero. So where and who should we be talking about next? Well, before we go on, I just wanted to qualify that. I agree that Plato ultimately is a is a villain, but he also did a lot of good things. Okay, including, good point. Including men mentoring Aristotle. So he's a mixed case. But I think because his philosophy, his metaphysics is heavily otherworldly, sure and has had an influence on Christianity. And because his politics leans heavily towards totalitarianism, and he had an influence on the communists and, and fascists in the 20th century, I think because of that, I, I would designate him mostly as, as a villain. Now, partly to your point, I, I think perhaps we should clarify is that when we say he's a villain, what we mean is that his philosophy has ultimately led to very detrimental consequences right we're not saying and, that he was right. running around attacking people or he was right. some right. kind and, of serial right. killer You're right Mike. and not just and not as a misrepresentation or misunderstanding of his philosophy the otherworldliness is real and well, otherworldliness is not real the otherworldliness really it's a real part of his philosophy absolutely right? yeah and the and the philosopher king and and the idea that the educated elite know best what's good for my life better than I do is, you know, that's very big part of, of his political philosophy. So it, it leans heavily towards dictatorship and to totalitarianism. So, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I find that in my experience, usually whenever somebody advocates that type of system, they usually imagine themselves or their choices are the ones dictating things, right? It's yeah, never, yeah. they're going to be the ones dictated to. Good point, Michael. You know, 20 years ago when I was doing the research for my book, uh, The Capitalist Manifesto, uh, I came across a great quote. Uh, now, I can't even remember who, who said it, but it was some free market economist, I think, who pointed out that uh, in, in, in trying to understand human motivations, we often place too much emphasis on, on the, the desire for profit or wealth and not enough on the desire for power. And I think that's absolutely true and, and, and is directly you know, right to your point. Okay, so that out of the way, who are we going to next, where and when, after Aristotle? What, what's the best best place to go? Well, hitting the high points here, uh, otherwise it'd be a, you know, a whole semester or even a year-length course. Um, St. Augustine is enormously influential, mostly for bad, and then uh, Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas, uh, enormously inf influential, mostly, you know, uh, overwhelmingly for, for good. Um, so... Augustine, we're jumping, we're jumping, uh, Aristotle dies in 322 BC. What are Augustine's dates? I think he's 354 to 430 AD. Uh, so we're jumping, you know, like 700, 700 years. Right. So Aug we're skipping, for instance, like we're, we're skipping the Hellenistic period. We're, right. we're jumping over the Stoics and, and you're getting right into early 
Christian philosophy. Yeah, we're talking about the real influential, yeah. you know, the real big time inf influential people who've had harmful or positive benefits or harmful or positive effects in Western civilization. And Augustine was was North African. Um, he was a he was a, a bishop of the Catholic Church. Ultimately, was canonized Saint Augustine, and he was a a, a neo what they call it in the history of philosophy a neoplatonist, and that is um, you know a new a, a new form of Platonism, Platonism as seen through the eyes of of Christianity. And by the way, you can read if you read the Confessions of Saint Augustine, he's a very good writer, as was Plato. Um, but uh, he feels compelled. He's, once he embraces Christianity, uh, he feels compelled to go through his life and tell us every sin that he ever perpetrated in his entire life, you know, from innocuous things like stealing a pear from his neighbor's orchard when he was a kid to when he was seven years old, to real big time stuff like abandoning his pregnant girlfriend. And, and then, he, then, of course, he has the chutzpah, as they say in here, this has the audacity to project that kind of sinfulness onto the rest of us. We're all sinners. I, you know, I read Augustine and I feel like saying, speak for yourself, you know. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, Augustine um, is, is influenced by, by Plato and also by, well, let's stay with Plato first and then get to, get to St. Paul and then we can move on to St. Thomas. But um um, Plato, of course, as we discussed last week, you know, believes in the, the forms, you know, these archetypes, these ideas in the higher world. So dogness exists in the higher world and dogs exist in this world as some kind of reflection, like, you know, like a shadow, like a shadow cast by an object on a sunny day. So the, the, the things in this world are like shadows, you know, uh, re reflected by the forms, which are the real deal. But Augustine, uh, once, once he becomes a Christian, because uh, I think his father was a pagan, his mother was a Christian. Uh, once he converts to Christianity as a young man, he points out you know, logically on these premises that ideas don't free float around in reality, you know, somewhere like Plato claims. Ideas exist in the mind. Well, guess whose mind encompasses the you know these uh, these ideas uh, that that form the basis for for the things of this world. So you know, Augustine makes a good point, I think, on on religious premises. We're talking about dogs and dogness, or rocks and rockness, or man and manness, or whatever it is. Those ideas exist, you know, in God's mind prior to creation. Uh, by reference to which, he, you know, he creates rocks because he understands rockness, and he creates man because he under he understands manness. So you know, he's. Um, He's a he's a he's a devout he 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 integrates Platonism with Christianity. You now, know, hold Michael, on one second. Now yeah, he ahead. he was previously a I don't, I don't know I'm gonna butcher it. I've only read these names. I've never heard him pronounced. But he he was a Manichaean, right? But, uh, Manichaean, Manichaean. Before yeah. he was a Christian. Now did that influence his philosophy even as a Christian, or does he leave it all behind once he embraces Christianity? You know that I don't. The simple answer to that question is I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't remember if, if you may be right that Augustine was a Manichaean. I'm I'm not sure, but the, uh, about that. But I do know the Church condemns Manichaeanism as a heresy. You know, it's the it's, it's the man the Manichaean heresy, um, and uh, 
the 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 Manichaeans, of course, believe that evil has power in in the world, so that God God is is limited. You know, God God fights evil as best he can, but evil has has power in the world. I always teach this to my students: is you know that God is like Batman, you know, and that he, he Batman fights crime you know, relentlessly, uh, you know, and, 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 and effectively, but there's a lot of crime in Gotham City, you know, he doesn't, he, he can't get it at all. I think if Augustine, you may be right, Augustine may well have been a Manichaean, um, but if he was, he, you know, he rejects that on embracing Christianity because, you know, God is all powerful and consequently all powerful and all good, consequently evil can't have any independent power. Uh, in the world, which that makes it impossible to uh, to explain why there's so much evil in the world if yeah. God's all all good and all powerful, or how but, we're all sinners, right? Like Augustine is teaching. Yeah, that's that's the other point that I that I wanted to make. Like, if you know, if you go back through the Gospels, and I'm not an expert on Christianity, but I know you know a little bit of it. You know, Jesus, um, Jesus, you know, uh, accepts the claim that we're all sinners, you know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? That's pretty clear. You know, if you don't, we don't accept His sacrifice on the cross, we're going to burn in the big barbecue downstairs for for a long time. <laughs> but Jesus emphasizes God's mercy. You know, God loves us; He doesn't want to punish us. He sent His only Son to suffer for us. You know, and so on and so forth. The 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 iron fist of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, is encased in a velvet glove in in Jesus. But um, but Paul, the Apostle Paul to the Protestants, St. Paul to the Catholic, Paul stresses you know, just the sinfulness of man. We're all sinners, you know, and so on and, and, and so forth. And you get these two strands in Christian morality that come down. One from Jesus emphasizing God's mercy. The other from Paul and the Old Testament emphasizing the sinfulness of man and God's anger and punishment and augustine's definitely in that pauline camp they're all sinners and you all deserve nothing but to go straight to hell you know do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars. just go go straight to hell um and uh yeah augustine's philosophy dominates the dark ages roughly the fifth to the ninth centuries ad and the and the early middle ages so augustine has a major influence here you know, not just he's not the only one. He's a, he's he's a major philosopher of Christianity, but uh, you know, as as a spoke as a powerful spokesman for Christianity, he has a tremendous influence through the early Middle Ages. In in City of God, how much influence does that have on politics, culture? Does does that have the same type of impact as the Confessions? I I think that yeah, you know, Augustine's famous book, The City of God, it definitely has an impact. In in that day, Augustine dies in the in the fifth century A.D. Uh, I, I, was, was he was he living? It was he in Carthage, like but somewhere in oh no Hippo is somewhere in North Africa. The barbarians were like literally pounding at the gates, you know, as as, as he dies. If I, if I remember his his lifespan correctly, City of God um, is a is an answer to to the pagan philosophy. You know, that if, you know, Rome, this is the, Gibbon later on picks up on this theme and is the rise and, and fall of the, you know, the Roman Empire. 
uh, or was, was it Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? Gibbon's famous book in, in the 18th century. It's Decline, yeah. Yeah, Decline. Yeah, thank you. Decline. You, you did a lot of reading when you were on ice, didn't you? I actually so, never read that, but I do know the title. I came across yeah. it a lot. Yeah, thank you. Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Um, did you just say when I was on ice? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. <laughs> I grew up in Brooklyn, so you know. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, uh, the the um, city of God. He's he, you know the pagans pointed out that when Rome was pagan, it flourished, you know, and then, then Christianity became dominant. We became a bunch of wimps. Became a bunch of turn the other cheek wimps, and you can't do that with you with barbarians, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, Augustine in the City of God is is answering the the, the pagan philosophers on, on this. He's uh, he's he claims that there were two cities, you know, metaphorically. You know, there there were two co communities. There's those who you know embrace God, and there's and then there's those who embrace the the earthly city. And um, you know, those who embrace the earthly city are uh, concerned with power and profit and pleasure um, and everything. But those who embrace the godly city are, are you know, concerned with this, this, the, the salvation of their soul, their moral character, ultimately, you know, their, their, their union with, with, with God. And uh, this is, this is the, the, you know, the, the most powerful uh, city by far. And if, and if we had embraced God fully, you know, God, God would be on our side. God would, God would back us. Uh, so Augustine's argument amounts to one: Rome didn't embrace Christianity soon enough or nearly enough to be, you know, to be fully supported and you know, be a godly city and be supported by God. And two, the most important point is, regardless of what happens on Earth. If you live, the much much more important point is what happens, you know, after we die, uh, and and those in the earthly city are gonna, you know, gonna suffer, and those in the godly city are gonna be supported. You know, in the nineteenth century, the Catholic uh, writer and clergyman uh, Cardinal Newman, you see these Newman clubs on college campuses that you know the Catholic clubs. Uh, Cardinal Newman put it nicely. He said, "Where." Where we go in the hereafter depends on what we go after here. So, so Augustine pointed out, you know, that's the real that the real value of embracing Jesus is not so much that that we have a godly life on earth and have a better life on earth, but but what happens in the, in the afterlife? Yeah, we don't want God to put us on ice. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or it's in actually flames. quite hot ice. Yeah, yeah. in, in <laughs> flames. Different. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, one last point on Augustine, uh, Michael. W.T. Jones, a famous historian of, you know, of philosophy, points out that in this period, the dark and Middle Ages, let's say from the 5th century A.D. to roughly the 12th century, when you start to see what they call the medieval Renaissance, it's a good 600 years. Um, the, um, the concern, the focus is on not on knowledge of nature, but on the, the knowledge that'll enable us to gain salvation. And, and Joan, Jones puts it very nicely because you know, leprosy was a horrible disease back then. And he says in the, the cure for leprosy wasn't so important, but you know, not knowledge of what, what would gain us salvation was, was important. And Augustine's one major spokesman 
for you know for, for that view and um, rejecting rejecting uh, the knowledge of this world for knowledge of the next. So, how much do you think Pauline Christianity and Augustinian Christianity? How how big of a part did they play, or how responsible are they for the Dark Ages? You know that variant of Christianity that seems to have taken hold. Um. Well, I think, I think any any variant of Christianity, it's. You know, I just read. Uh, you know, to your point, Mike, I just read a few months ago, Catherine Nixie's book. You know, the the Darkening Age I think is the title of it. On uh, it's it's very good. I recommend it. She, you know, she's a classicist on uh, on Christianity's impact on the uh, on the Roman world. You know, the Christian apologists have long told us that Christians were, you know, tormented by by the by the pagans. You know, which 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 to some extent is true, but the the real violence was what when the Christians came to power is what they did to you know to pagan culture the, the great greek culture i mean the way they, they butchered hypatia is one example you know in in alexandria if you ever saw the movie agora you know no i've never seen it well but hypatia a brilliant pagan mathematician scientist they they coughed her to pieces you know they 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 just they they butchered her they you know they burned books they burned the, a lot of the poetry of sappho the great greek poetess they tore down the, a lot of the brilliant architecture from the Greek temples and the, the statues of uh, of Greek gods. You know, they 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 destroyed a lot of there's a, there's a lot of writing Roman writings. You know, from some some of the great Roman writers that we don't have any we don't have anything of. It was, most of it was destroyed. Uh, what was destroyed mostly was destroyed by by Christians. So I say Christianity in any form. Um, and later on, you know, is Islam did the same thing, and and back in the day, the Orthodox Jews uh, also fought, you know, desperately against the Greek influence. That's the story of the Maccabees. I was why I would never celebrate Hanukkah. Uh, you know, the Orthodox Jews, and I called them the Taliban of, of their day. You know, uh, they were religious fanatics. Uh, they were dead set against the Greek influence and you know, encroaching upon Jewish culture. Jewish it's culture. a good thing we each have a Jewish last name. Otherwise, we might be getting canceled after that remark. <laughs> <laughs> that the Maccabees were the Taliban. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but we're, we're hitting Christianity really hard. Hitting them all. Spare no faith. Yeah. But anyway, to answer your question, uh, the, I think Christianity is largely responsible for the, for the Dark Ages because, first of all, uh, you know, when I debated Dinesh D'Souza on... Uh, on uh, Christianity, good or bad, and um, I, I, he doesn't—he didn't know—he didn't seem not—he didn't seem to know that some of the barbarian tribes that sacked Rome were Christians. Some you know, some of them were, were pagans or you know polytheists. Some were Christians. But the key point is that all of the the pagan tribes that sacked Rome quickly converted to Christianity by like by, by like roughly 500 AD. They're pretty much all, or the or the sixth century AD anyway. They were pretty much all all Christians, and it was Christianity's uh, animus towards their emphasis on faith and the Bible, and, and their animosity towards the towards the Greek uh, rational approach that caused them to burn books and and so on and so forth. 
520 something AD, who was the, uh, who was the Justinian? I think just, just the Emperor Justinian ruling the, the Eastern Empire closed, was one, was one example, closed the pagan schools of philosophy in Athens, including Plato's Academy, which had existed for like eight or 900 years. I think Aristotle's Lyceum had already closed down not so long before that, but he, he closed all the pagan schools, forbade any pagans to teach. Uh, and um, that, that the Greek emphasis on reason was inherently subversive of, of, of Christian faith. And um, yeah, the, the only, the only uh, thing that was important was God and the Bible and the requirements of salvation. All of the wisdom of the ancients the Greeks, Greeks in particular, but also the Romans, was of no value. In fact, it was a, it was an anti-value, it was a disvalue to them. That's why they burned, you know, they burned so many. But Aristotle's works, except for his logic, were lost in the West for you know, for centuries. So yeah, Christ, Christianity in any form, I think, is largely responsible for that. Their, their hostility towards education, educating the mind, and you know, and and towards reason. So how do we get out of that? I'm, I'm imagining if philosophy gets us in a, into it, in this case, the religious philosophy of Christianity, that philosophy gets us out. Yes. So how does that happen and when? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, speaking of Islam, the Islam plays, plays a role here because was Muhammad's dates were what? 570 to 632 AD. You know, in his lifetime, his followers conquer Arabia. They were, they, you know, Islam's, you know, Islam's the one true faith. Uh, they recognize Judaism and Christianity, you know, people of the book, you know, people of the Bible, but um, Islam supersedes, supersedes the, the revelations that God granted Muhammad supersede anything uh, prior to them. And they closed the door. There will be no further revelations. That's it. God locked up shop. Is there any, any, anybody who claims any revelations from God after this is bogus. So, you know, consequently, Islam is the one true faith. And, and it's got, God mandates it's got to rule the world. So Muhammad was a warrior. His followers were warriors. They, they erupt out of Arabia, 6th century AD. They conquer the Middle East. They conquer large parts of the Far East. They invade Europe repeatedly. Uh, they, um, you know, conquer North Africa. And um, they... Uh, in conquering, uh, in conquering large parts of the Byzantine Empire, you know, the, the, the Roman Empire in the West had collapsed, but the Roman Empire in the East ruled, ruled from Constantinople, not from Rome, but you know, in the, the Eastern portion. And, and by Greek. then it's called the Byzantine Empire, right? They changed right. the name, but it's, the, it's yeah. just the Eastern, when you're saying Eastern Empire of the Roman Empire, it's now the, not now, but then it was the Byzantine Empire, right? Correct. Okay. And it was heavily Greek. And and much of the Greek writings had survived, and in conquering large parts of the Byzantine Empire, the Muslim scholars found the writings of Aristotle and other and other great Greek thinkers and writers. And to their credit, they were fascinated by what Aristotle had said. And Aristotle becomes like the patron philosopher of early Islamic intellectual culture, and one of one of the caliphs, you know the the the, the head, heads of Islam in, in Baghdad set up a, what, what, what he called, the English translation is a school of wisdom. And, you know, to teach philosophy, to teach Greek philosophy, to teach particularly Aristotle, 
they uh, they tra- they set up a translation movement in Baghdad that lasted. It, it lasted for several centuries, and they they sent to Constantinople. They got other Greek texts and other works of Aristotle. They translated them into Arabic. And this is the golden age of Islam, which was real, by the way. It's not a, a woke, politically correct, you know, delusion. It was uh, the golden age of Islam was golden. Uh, the, the Islamic thing, you know, some of them were religious, some of them not so much. But but Islam was, the Islamic world was more tolerant of free thinkers back then. And uh, uh, they made en- enormous advances in medicine, in mathematics, in astronomy, in in many branches of science, literature flourished. You know, the Arabian Nights is is what we we know most. You know, thousand and one uh, nights is is what we know mostly from that era. But that was that's that was considered you know minor stuff to the Arab and and Persian Muslims. There's great poetry written by you know many a number of uh, Islamic writers. So this this was a real golden age. Now, how does that affect the West? Well, they were that didn't you know the golden age, they were they were much more culturally advanced than the West, and they conquered Spain, and across the the Med, Muslim uh, probably North African Berber tribes, you know, across the Med conquered Spain in seven eleven A.D., which is a date easy for Americans to remember. Uh, crossed the Pyrenees, invaded present day France, and defeated seven thirty two A.D. Uh, at the Battle of Tours by Charles Martel. Charles the Hammer, who was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Um, but anyway, the, the Battle of Tours may have been the most important battle in European history, certainly one of them, because the stakes were whether Islam or Christianity would be the dominant religion on the European continent. Anyway, the Muslims are defeated. They retreat back across the Pyrenees into Spain. But they a flourish, build a flourishing culture in Spain, universities, libraries. You know, if you ever um, seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, Alec yeah. Guinness says, yeah. King Faisal, he says, I long as I yearn for the lighted streets of Cordoba or something like that. They actually had street lights. You know, this is in the, you know, in the, he's, he's right. They had street lights, the sewer system, you know, much more hygienic, uh, much more advanced culture. So the Catholic warriors are fighting, you know, constantly to try to reconquer Spain. From what I understand, when they, you know, the way they teach history in Spain to this day, part of the centerpiece of it is what they call the Reconquista, you know, the reconquest of Spain by the Catholics from the Muslims. By the 13th century, uh, by early 1200, the Catholic warriors had con- reconquered large parts of Spain, and the the the, the great libraries and universities and and and, sc- and schools of learning that the Muslims had built in Spain, based on their understanding of the Greeks. And especially of Aristotle, uh, brought Catholic scholars back into touch with a lot of the Greek writings. And like their Muslim forebears, you know, 500 years earlier, they were fascinated by what the Greeks had to say, and especially Aristotle. And Archbishop Raymond uh, I of Toledo hired a bunch of translators. He didn't care what religion they were. He was obviously a Catholic bishop, but the, the translators could be Muslims, Jews, Catholics. He didn't care. They just had to be fluent in Arabic and in Latin. So they could, tra- you know, they had, the Muslims had translated the Greek into Arabic. And now he now he had a whole school, school of translators translate uh, the Greeks, especially Aristotle, into Latin, the language of European scholars. And this hits 
you know, this hits 13th century Europe, you know, like, like a thunderbolt after centuries of misery, disease and poverty and starvation and, you know, and everything. And rejecting knowledge of nature for knowledge of the supernatural, you can understand why a lot of active minds were hungry for a greater knowledge of, of, of nature. And uh, now the church at first reacted predictably. The church banned a lot of, uh, you know, the, the writings of, of Aristotle and other, you know, naturalist writers uh, and people like Thomas Aquinas and Albertus Magnus, you know, you know people, people are burned at the stake for, you know, for teaching Aristotle. But University of Paris, you know, the, the, this is the beginnings of the, the, the universities uh, as the West slowly climbs up out of the Dark Ages. University of Paris became a hotbed of Aristotelian philosophy. Uh, I think Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great taught there. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, his great student, and um, was, was there. And uh, we start to see Aristotle be, be widely studied in the, in the nascent you know, Western universities. So which of these philosophers would you say is the biggest conduit of Aristotle? Who brings him into the, I guess it would be the late Middle Ages. Who who brings him into yeah. the late Middle Ages and makes Aristotle great again? <laughs> right. High, they, they call it late Middle Ages. They call it the high Middle Ages. That That's, that's correct. Have to be St. Thomas Aquinas. But we should say something about his great teacher, Albertus Magnus, okay. who, who, who was an Aristotle scholar, a scientist, a philosopher. The, the, the great thing about Albert, and he lived to be like 80 years old. They, they, nobody knows his exact dates, but roughly 1200 to 1280 or 1280-something. Albert um, sailed the North Sea looking for specimens. He was a researcher. He was a, an empiricist. He was, like Aristotle himself, he was fascinated by nature and observable fact. Not, you know, the old, the old Augustinian tradition was that, you know, the things of this world exist you know, only as projections of the forms. And so by, and the forms, of course, exist as ideas in God's mind. So knowing God's mind, you know, we would know whatever we needed to know about nature. Well, Albert, no, <laughs> no, that's not the way to study nature. You know, you know, you, you know, biology and is not a, a subcategory of theology, for, for God's sake. He, you know, he was he was researching and, and getting like Aristotle himself, getting getting specimens and you know, and and, ex, and examining different life forms via observation. So. He brought Aristotle's scientific spirit and fascination with biology. You know, he's he's a he's a seminal figure in that regard. But his great student, Thomas Aquinas, later canonized, you know, Saint Thomas, um, is is widely considered the greatest Catholic philosopher of history and maybe the greatest religious philosopher as such. He's the he's the main conduit of Aristotle. He undertakes. St. Thomas does this vast synthesis between Aristotelian philosophy and, and Christian theology. And to a remarkable degree, you know, the, the, those two are irreconcilable, but to a remarkable degree, he gives an explanation of how these two can be uh, integrated. He, he says, uh, his, his famous line, I think the key to St. Thomas's vast system is his famous line, grace perfects nature. 
you know, there's no antipathy between the other world and this world. It's 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 a gaining the other world, the higher world, is a is a, a process of Aristotelian self actualization. As we we actualize ourselves in this world by all the virtues that Aristotle discusses in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, by being a, you know the most fully developed rational animal that we can. This is how we rise towards we rise towards heaven. So there's no there's no soul body split. There's no mortifying the flesh. God God's looking. What are you crazy? What are you doing to your bodies? You know, you know. You see Saint Thomas's attitude. God gave us his body. He expects us to torture it, torment it, and you know, and 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 deny. He expects us to take care of it, uh, in effect. And God gave us his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't expect us to reject it, to believe stuff like burning bushes speak or men live inside whales. You know, God God gave us reason and and by God, he expects us to use it. Uh, and so he's a thoroughgoing Aristotelian in everything uh, in his system that relates to the natural world. And there's a, and there's a great deal uh, that does relate to the natural world because that's a stepping stone to the higher world. It's not by denying things of this world that we gain salvation it's by actualizing ourselves as human beings in Aristotle he's a he's a brilliant Aristotelian and he, he makes a lot of really good points um, and his popularity his growing popularity is what really brings Aristotle back to the fore in the in the late middle ages I mean you know I remember studying with Leonard Peacock many years ago and he he pointed out this this one aspect of Thomas Aquinas what he calls the Thomas Aquinas calls the erring reason binds. And that is, even if your rational judgment is in error, even if it clashes with, you know, with the claims of, of the Bible, you're mistaken if, if that's the case. But you're a rational animal. You have to go with your best rational judgment. Even if, even if you're in error, even if it clashes with Christian faith, you have to go with your rational judgment. That's who we are. And that's what God expects us to be. That's, I mean, wow. In the 13th, Thomas Aquinas was 1225 to 1274 AD. In the 13th century, I mean, that's like a thunderbolt. He's lucky he wasn't burned at the stake. <laughs> Instead, he was canonized. Yeah, well, centuries later. Yeah, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas is a brilliant uh, magnificent conduit of Aristotle and the Greeks into the into the late was this what they call the medieval Renaissance uh, you know, the birth of the, 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 well the universities had been around for for a little while before that but here's where the universities really begin to to, to do their job educate you know in, in in rational subject matters and you get the rebirth what later a little, little bit later in the Italian Renaissance roughly 1350. I mean, Thomas Aquinas dies in 1274. The Italian Renaissance generally dated 1350 to 1550. And Renaissance, of course, means rebirth. And the rebirth is of, of reason, uh, interest in nature, and humanism. You know, the, the, that man is a valuable being. Uh, and man, in the contrast that Augustinian view, oh, well, it says hopeless sinners. What was Augustine's great phrase where Sorted, bespotted, ulcerous, and foul—I mean, something like that. I mean, it's, it's really brilliantly written, but it's just so depressed. It's so negative about human beings. Okay, so so far, if if I'm getting this right, we've got—I would say, 
Paul would be a villain of philosophy. Augustine would be a villain of philosophy, whereas Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas would be heroes of philosophy. The only thing I would take exception with there is uh, I I don't think Paul qualifies as a philosopher. He's a villain. (laughs) (laughs) I think he qualifies as as a philosopher, as a a religious leader. I I agree Um, with you, but he is the reason I, I, I put him in there. He's certainly not a philosopher, but he certainly is an influential thought leader. Okay, uh, that that's yeah. that's really what I mean. But you're yeah, right his epistles he are, wasn't a philosopher. His epistles sure. are definitely inf- influential, without a doubt. All right, so Aristotle starts to take hold. Aquinas is teaching it. In my view, now there's a lot of philosophers. You know, once the Enlightenment comes around, you know, and, and thought leaders like Luther. But in my view, the the most important of the philosophers, I would go, I would skip Grote in in Hobbes. And I think that in terms of impact, I would say Locke. Uh, Would you disagree with me on Locke's impact? Are there any philosophers before Locke that warrant mention in terms of this discussion? Yeah, Descartes. Um, Okay, Descartes. All right. Yeah, you're right. I forgot all about I'm thinking of British philosophers. Well, you're absolutely right about Locke. Locke. Locke is enormously important. And I know, and I think overwhelmingly, you know, a hero in that, like you said, in that his his ideas are very life giving, uh, both in epistemology and in politics. But we, but Descartes often considered the the father of modern philosophy, and 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 there's good there's good reason to think of him in that way. So Descartes is uh, 1596 to 1650. So we jumped we've jumped several centuries. Uh, by this time. Aristotle's philosophy dominates the universities, you know, and, and the modern philosophers, Descartes, Hobbes, they, they refer to them, the, those Aristotelians contemptuously as the schoolmen, you know, the, you know, sometimes the, the scholastics. But here's Hold on the one second. Does that mean I've heard those two terms and they seem to be used interchangeably, schoolmen and scholastics. Are they the same people? Um, very often, yes. Okay. Yeah. The, here's, here's the bad news. The, uh, you know, the the students of of Thomas Aquinas, and not just literal students, but, but people who studied him, you know, centuries later, uh, they're they're Christian Aristotelians. They're the, like Thomas himself. They're a combination of Christianity and and Aristotle. And uh, unfortunately, they embrace Aristotelian content by by use of a, a Christian method. Uh, and that is, they almost take Aris, what Aristotle says on faith. Aristotle says this, ah, well, that's it. You know, they treat Aristotle, ah, this is serious. They treat Aristotle like it was the word of Jesus or the word of Paul or the word of some some of the founding uh, church, you know, founders of, of the Catholic church. It's like he's an infallible guy. Now, Aristotle, of course, understandably made many errors in, physic, in physics. Um, and, uh, but... The, the schoolmen, the, the Christian Aristotelians, we could just call them the Christian Aristotelians, even though that's a big mouthful. They they pronounce Aristotle as, as though a gospel. You know, and it frustrated Galileo, for one, enormously. Galileo's dates were what? Uh, 1564 to 1643, I think. 1642. It's interesting about Galileo because they, they see him as a, often seen as a, a conduit between the Renaissance and the Age of Reason. 
because he, he, he Galileo was born in 1564, which is the year Michelangelo dies. Michelangelo's dead, no more Renaissance. Right? Uh, and Galileo dies in 1642, which is the year Newton is born. You know, so, but anyhow, so Galileo reinvents the telescope. He's, he's getting all this empirical data and, and to, uh, about the moon. I forget what, what Aristotle said about the moon, but the, um, but um, Galileo's empirical data, the empirical findings through the telescope contradict. Well, the, the Christian Aristotelians or Christians won't look through the, the telescope. They, they refuse. And Galileo's like frustrated because he, see, he hints, he hints uh, rightly that Aristotle himself, with his overwhelming respect for evidence, would look through the telescope. These guys won't. Uh, for various reasons. But anyhow, they're taking Aristotle, Aristotelian content on faith. But yeah, method trumps content. Um, right? method, is, method is the more important. They've thrown out that observation-based rationality to treat his content as gospel. Uh, so I can understand why the early moderns are frustrated. And, and unfortunately, they, uh, they some of them seem to believe that Aristotle himself is responsible for this, not the, not the, the Christian bastardized Aristotelians. So Descartes, uh, he's French, he's a devout Catholic. He's a, he's a post-Renaissance Platonist uh, in that he, he accepts the idea of innate ideas that come, you know, come from a higher world and, you know, in, in, in our soul. And so a brilliant mathematician, one of the great mathematicians of history, great geometer, uh, and he's looking for certainty. And they call this you know, methodological doubt that Descartes look, Descartes looking for everything that can be doubted in order to find that which can't be doubted, that which is indubitable yeah. and certain. And he said, no, nah, he said, what if, even as a devout Catholic, he says, well, what if the universe isn't governed by this all good God? What if it's governed by an all, all powerful evil demon who delights in deceiving you? So, you know, every time I, you know, I, uh, I see, uh, the, the, the sun shining you know, on, a, on, a, on a bright day and I, and I think, oh, the, 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 the sun is out and everything. I could be wrong. God might be deceiving me on all this in, in empirical data uh, or on causal relationships. I might believe every time I stick my hand in the fire, I'll get burned. And every time I have done it, which is zero, but every time I've done it, you know, I have, have gotten burned. Uh, and I think there's a causal relationship that using an example Hume later makes famous. Um, but, you know, maybe God's deceiving me uh, that, uh, on that. Even in mathematics, you know, three times three equals nine, which to me, the great mathematician is, is the most certain of any God subject. God might even be deceiving me on mathematics. Um, and so he finally arrives at, at something he thinks can't be doubted. And that is, I must be a thinking being, because even if the evil demon were to deceive me, I have to believe X. As I say, I, I believe X, whereas non-X is true. To believe X is it requires consciousness, requires thinking, it requires awareness. I have to be a thinking being in order to be deceived. You know, I, as I put it, as a kid from Brooklyn, I put it in my my summary of this philosophy, I said, you know, you, we, we can't deceive a rock, for, for, for example. Uh, so that's, this is Descartes' famous cogito. You know, cogito ergo sum, I, I think therefore I am. 
Uh, there's the axiom. Descartes a geometer, don't forget. Descartes, there's the axiom that we could start with, the indubitable principle that can't be doubted. And so he starts with the existence of the self. And then, then from the self, the existence of, this is known in the history of philosophy as, as the prior certainty of consciousness. The consciousness is the one indubitable reality. And by reference to the, this is what Ayn Rand calls, you know, primacy of consciousness. By reference to the content of our own minds, we then have to deduce, we can't induce it by observation, you know, the, the existence of God and the existence of, a, of, of nature, of an external world. So, so Descartes... No, 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 but it's one last point. Okay. Notice what Descartes does here. He throws out the Aristotelian method of inducing, of observation-based yeah. reasoning, and he does it based on the fantasy of an evil demon. What are you... What? We're gonna doubt, you know, that the sun is shining today, but we're gonna we're gonna take as an unquestionable possibility that there's an evil demon deceiving me on, on everything. <laughs> no. It's, it's a bit wacky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially for somebody, you know, a brilliant mind like Descartes. Yeah, because there's no evidence that there is such a thing. So why yeah, exactly? Even... Exactly. There's a lot of evidence the sun is shining. There's no yeah. evidence there's an evil. Evil theme. And I've often thought mathematicians should be legally debarred from philosophizing. They, they, you know, they tend to be so rationalistic. You know, Plato well, was, was enamored of mathematics. Descartes was a mathematician. They let the biologists do it, you know, like Aristotle. That was actually going to be my question is Descartes would, he, he properly would be classified as a rationalist and he adheres to the coherent theory of truth, right? Would that, that That's the way you would formulate what Descartes was. Descartes was definitely a rationalist. The coherence theory of truth, I'm not sure if that was if that was around in his day. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that, that back then they would have called him that. I'm just saying, but that's the basic of the thing is that the ideas have to cohere. They have yeah, to be yeah, no, no, that's that that's right. That you have to be able, like in geometry, you have to be able to in geometry you can, you know, you can do, deduce your theorems, you know, from, from the axioms and prove it by reference to the axioms. Same thing in philosophy for Descartes and Spinoza and, and people like that. You, we, we, knowledge, knowledge is ultimately deductive. You start with some basic principle and then you churn out your, your conclusions from that basic premise. In contrast to Aristotle, who although he was the father of deductive logic and the, the syllogism, always emphasized induction, you know, forming the principles from observed data, from observed facts is fundamental. It's a simple example, you know, go back to the cats, you know, uh, all lions, uh, uh, cats, all cats, are, all cats are carnivores, all lions are cats, therefore all lions are, 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 are carnivores. Okay, fine. All cats are carnivores. They're all meaty. How do we know that? From observation. You, you, we, we, yeah. we, could deduce, we could deduce what we just did from that basic premise, but how do we know the basic premise is true? And Aristotle stressed induction observation reference to the facts that's how we, we, we that's how we find out that all cats are meat eaters so a rationalist so there in that in the formula you just stated right we learn from observation these things by by induction and then we can deduce from the premises that we've learned from observation and we can come to accurate conclusions but a rationalist right. for instance there'd be nothing wrong in the mind of a rationalist to say I'm a cat, all cats fly, therefore I fly, right? There's no contradiction in there. 
the 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 if you accept the premise that I'm a cat and that all cats fly, I'll fly is the the logical conclusion to come to. And without observation, there's no way to ever know what the accurate thing is, which I suppose is why Descartes wants to ground his theory in a, a un uh, unimpeachable axiom, such as I, I think, therefore I am. Right? Exactly. Exactly. The 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 where does the axiom come from? It's, it's it doesn't come from induction. Uh, so it comes from God, you know, to Descartes, the Catholic, and it comes from the soul's you know prior life in a higher world to to Plato. So you have innate ideas. So the, the these ideas that the soul is born with. And how do we know? How do we know that these innate ideas are accurate? And Descartes says, well, they appear to me to be clear and distinct as as you know, as as he puts it. To go back to geometry, uh, you know, the parallel postulate that, you know, the two lines running parallel to each other, uh, certainly on a, on a flat surface, won't meet. Well, that makes sense, right? And if that's a basic axiom, then we can, you know, okay, you, you know, we can then deduce certain things uh, from that. But the axiom itself, it's, you know, to Descartes, it's just, if the idea is clear and distinct, then it has then it can, it has the uh, has the qualifications, and then we could begin to deduce from from that. The problem, of course, is it's completely subjective. What's clear clear and distinct to one person may not be clear and distinct to another. You know, to Hitler's followers, it might have been very the idea that the Aryan race is is morally superior based on biological inheritance might have been clear and distinct. Uh, you know, uh, to them, it's 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 a vague, mushy, imprecise definition of our, of our starting points. Which is okay. All... So, th this word "mushy" is this to be found in the the philosophy dictionaries? <laughs> no, no, but imprecise, <laughs> imprecise. <laughs> but any, but anyhow, so with Descartes, uh, we have. Here's, here's a couple of last points on, on Descartes. Um, they, it's often said in the history of philosophy that in the search for truth, the ancients, the, you know, especially the Greeks, generally looked to nature for truth. The medieval, the, the ancients looked outward to nature. The medievals looked generally upward to God. And the moderns generally look inward into the self. And then there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth, you know, to that so it's uh, so descartes we're we're going to classify as a villain right yeah yeah he's a great mathematician but as a philosopher villain yeah it's woeful the, the whole subjectivist tradition in in modern philosophy originates with with him and i, I one last point about aristotle um i point you know i you know i i, I pointed out here in, in in my essay here that modern science you know people like galileo is birthed in the uh, you know in, in contra in, in I don't know what was my exact formulation I have I have it here in modern science yeah modern science was birthed in opposition to Aristotle's content tragically modern philosophy was birthed in opposition to Aristotle's method you know and and that's that's a I think is an important formulation because Aristotle made a lot of errors in physics Galileo and and the great scientists of the early uh, modern period absolutely right to reject Aristotle's uh, you know you know content um and 
put it on a much more evidential based uh, footing using the telescope and you know things like that. But Descartes, the father of modern philosophy, throws out Aristotle's inductive method by because he's afraid of being deceived by an evil being. And that's that's a terrible error. Now, you mentioned earlier that Aristotle would look through the telescope, right? Well, probably. So we it, don't know it, what Aristotle No, no, but, I, well, but it seems reasonable. But Yeah, he was very, he was in love with observation of nature. Either fast, you would think he'd be fascinated by it. Right. So the thing is with, obser- with, with learning based on reason and observation, we are able to correct ourselves, right? So if you if, if if you're making an error, so Aristotle's making mistakes, but if, if he's willing to look at reality through the telescope, now he can correct himself. Yeah, he, absolutely. But, but, but if absolutely. you're if you're a rationalist or a Platonist and you're stuck in your mind, you're not looking to reality. There's really no way for for the self correction process. I don't know if self correction is the right term, but I'll go yeah, with it, it is. for now. I don't, there's no way to do that because everything's locked in a, in a, in a lock tight ra- rationalistic system. Your, your reality can't conflict with you. And it just seems like through the, all the villains that you've discussed, right? We, we've gone through Plato, Augustine and, and Descartes. And the common theme seems to be is that their consciousness is divorced from observable reality. It's all based on either, you know, it's either in the world of forms, it's in the mind, it's in the mind of God. It's everywhere except for in what we can see, taste, smell, and touch. That's a very good point, Michael. Maybe you should uh, become, you know, get a PhD and become a philosopher. I don't have the time or the inclination. <laughs> Well, you have the time. It's the question I, if you have well, a yeah, strong yeah, enough stomach. Yeah, yeah. To, I, to I I find it much better to just talk to smart guys like you or read from smart guys, and I can can learn what well, I need. Well, thank to know. well, thank you. But you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's an important point. I mean, Ayn Rand defined rationalism as deduction without reference to reality, and that's exact. That's very. That is not mushy. That is very precise. Uh, that's a brilliant definition. So. Yeah, I mean, we could, uh, uh, well, what would be, um, I'm trying to think of, oh, theology. Theology is the whole field is an example of that. You know, logical deductions about God and angels. And yeah, by how the many way, angels say, on the head of a pin. Yeah, exactly. Thing, right? Thomas Aquinas, for all his Aristotelianism, was still a Christian. And he was, you know, Catholic. And he was the world's leading authority on angelology. He knew more about angels than anybody, anybody who ever ever lived. But but notice, and you brought up this point uh, last week in reference to the Euthyphro. You know, does God command X because X is good, or is X good yeah. because because God commands it? So we start with the Judeo Christian definition of God. And he's the all powerful, all knowing, all good creator and governor of the universe and of man. That's not a bad definition to start with. So God's all powerful. Always start shirking out our deductions. Well, then he can't be limited. X can't be good because in itself, because if it is, then God has to command X. He can't command non-X. He's all powerful and all good. And we start shirking out our deductions. And the whole field is just um, relentless deductive reasoning about nothing, about something that's a fantasy and doesn't, and doesn't exist. So that's a perfect example, theology. 
not just not the faith-based Bible thumpers, you know, but people who are actually intellectuals about God and think and reason and no logic and no Aristotelian logic and they deduce and uh, the intellect, you know, the theologians, the, inte the intellectuals. Yeah, they're they're going to explain how three can be one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good example. The Trinity. Right. Okay. So this is where we're going to stop. I think it's a good place. And next, next time you're here, I want to get into the sort of the political philosophers, which come, you know, th that stuff ultimately comes from the philosophies that they're, they're adhering to the way they think about human beings, the way they think about nature, about government. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. Uh, before we go, yeah, Locke, any... Locke, like you mentioned, is seminal. Sure. So before we get to that, is there anything in the, uh, eras that we've discussed that you think that went unsaid and needs to be said and if not then just tell us where where we can find you well one thing that should be pointed out i think is the christian war on greek philosophy and on reason like roughly a, you know, for centuries um i don't know if a thousand years may be too long because thomas aquinas and Albertus Magnus revitalized the commitment to reason in the 13th century. 600 years, uh, 700 years. The, the most difficult things to see are the foregone benefits of a, of a, you know, of a theory of what didn't come into existence because of the theory. 600 or 700 years of warming on reason. What, how much more advanced might we have been if the Greek approach and Aristotle's philosophy had been studied and used. The, look at the advances the Muslims made. Uh, how many more advances might the Europeans have, have made if they had, you know, had stayed true to the Greek approach rather than the Judeo-Christian faith-based approach? That's the tragedy uh, you know, of, of, of religion. Um, Great point, too. <laughs> wow. Yeah, 700 years of stagnation, which could have been 700 years of advance based on the, on the Greek you know, in the Greek achievements. Um, where, they, where they can reach me, my website is andrewbernstein.net. Uh, you know, my Facebook page. And I think it's mentioned last time, I have a novel coming out soon named Reckoning because I've long feared that we're being pushed, the country's being pushed into race war. And that's what this Reckoning is about, is race war comes to America. And it's because it's about race war, Michael, is brutal. But it's uh, if I pat myself on the back, it's very well plotted and it's dealing with a theme that's not only timeless, you know, uh, colorblind individualism versus racism in any form. The theme's not only timeless, tragically, it's not, not only timely, tragically, it's timeless. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being here. And I look forward to having you back on to continue this discussion. For now, this is the Rational Egoist. I'm Michael Leibowitz signing out. Till next time.